right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Cannabis Minority Report here by the National Cannabis Industry Association, the NCIA. We got a great episode here lined up for you today. I'm joined by our special co-host today, Chris Jackson, the vice chair of our board and the owner of the Basketball League's uh, Oakland County Pharaohs over there in Michigan. And we also are joined by a really special guest today, Mary Jane Oatman, the executive director of the Indigenous Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association, as well as, as you find out, several other organizations that Mary Jane is very integral with. So uh, we're going to jump first to uh, some announcements from NCIA, and then Chris will take us into the news, and then we'll have an amazing conversation. I know it's going to be amazing with Mary Jane Oatman. It's always a great conversation with Mary Jane. Uh, so I know pun intended, or maybe pun intended. I don't know. So uh, all right, here we go. So the first thing that I wanted to bring up today is uh, from the NCIA side of things, we have the Equity Workshop Tour in New York, Detroit, and Chicago has been taking shape. It's solidifying. Uh, we are not uh, yet a fully uh, officially announcing uh, Detroit and Chicago, hopefully later this week, but we are announcing New York. It's going to be May 13th. That's a Saturday. It's looking like it'll be 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. We hope that you'll join us there if you're in New York. Uh, these workshops are designed to really build community, build a network, recognize that networks are national. Uh, the, the quote that I keep using is from uh, Dr. Mila Marshall, who was on the show recently, and she said, look, people of color, we need to stop sleeping on the fact that our network is national. We need to really recognize the network is national and tap into that. The siloing that's been happening uh, definitely harms and hurts us uh, in being able to really build successful businesses and, and really find out what's going on. Um, so, uh, so yeah, thank you very much to our gold sponsors, Grow America Builders and Etain, our gold sponsors for New York, two companies that have been very actively engaged with NCA for many years now. Uh, we also would like to thank our silver sponsors, Indiva Advisors, Canis Capital, the Mary Jane Consulting Group, Zenco, and Illinois Equity Staffing. So thank you very much to these companies for stepping up and saying, yes, we want to throw a little bit extra skin in the game to make sure that these workshops happen and that we can bring the equity community together in these different places to be able to create this connectivity and the synergy. So thank you very much. Um, we also, uh, a little bit of news from the NCAA, uh, we had our second Global Majority Caucus uh, on last Friday. Global Majority Caucus, for those of you that are not aware, is made up of our Global Majority, aka minority, leaders from across the organization, board members, committee leaders, committee members, our equity scholarship members who have become very actively engaged in leaders in the organization. And we meet once every two months to basically uh, report out on what's going on in our different silos within the organization, all making efforts towards greater DEI within the organization and in the industry at large. So that was our second meeting that we had uh, just the other day. It was very successful, really great to hear all the different things going on across the organization and starting breaking down silos within the NCIA. So uh, let's see. One other thing I want to mention is a thank you to Evergreen Market for stepping up and sponsoring our DEI delegation to Lobby Days in D.C. in May. So our DEI delegation is made up of several of our uh, equity scholarship members who have been actively engaged in our committees, doing advocacy work, policy work, not only at the NCAA, but also in their local municipalities, local states. So really important to have these folks there in DC with us, uh, weighing in on our talking points, weighing in on what's going on with our organization regarding safe banking and how to make that more equitable. Uh, so all these different pieces, uh, again, thank you very much for Evergreen Market and everyone else that supported uh, Lobby Days in general as well. Uh, Evergreen Market stepped up and said, we wanna support the DEI delegation specifically. Um, so let's see. I think that's it for me. We got a couple great episodes coming up. Uh, next week, we're going to have Dr. Bridget Williams and Natasha Delinois 
Andrews. Uh, Natasha is the founder of the National Association of Black Cannabis Lawyers. Uh, Dr. Bridget Williams is a powerhouse in the really the, 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 the cannabinoid medicine, uh, you know, cannabinoid science uh, realm of things, part of our education committee here at NCI as well. Uh, and then she'll be followed up by Michael Diaz Rivera and Peter Sue. So um, with all that said, uh, I'm going to switch over here, switch gears and hand it off here to Chris Jackson. Chris, uh, recent guest on the show, I think the first guest of our new season and, uh, you know, vice chair. So here, Chris, let's go. Let's bring it back to you. And uh, what do you got for us today? No, I appreciate you having me back again. Uh, I'm excited for the interview that we have today. Um, appreciate all of the work that's being done, but we'll dive into that a little bit here quick soon. Uh, so, um, so many things we could be talking about. So many things, always so many things. Um, I was actually jealous because last week, um, you you covered this topic already, um, and you know it was unfortunate because I'm in that sports and entertainment space, right? And so, uh, if if you'll indulge me for a minute, I would love to just um, piggyback on a conversation you were having last week related to the NBA. Um, it's still with the CBA and the moves that are being made to allow for um, not only player consumption uh, in a variety of different ways, but also their ability to uh, promote and invest in in cannabis companies, which is huge, right? Um, I think I was a guest in earlier seasons and we kind of had this conversation. Um, and, and when you have minor league systems, right? So our team exists in the TBL, which is the basketball league, which is a tier underneath the G League in terms of competition. Uh what, what major league teams generally do is try new things out with minor league teams in a certain capacity to see, you know, if, if it could translate, how it translates, what kinks they need to work out, things like that. And so if you remember me talking about um, our league, right, so part of when I was with, with, with the company Sticky at the time, right, um, we had the ability to actually start to put uh, sponsorships and patches on our jersey from – different cannabis companies. Uh, and then it was also taken out of the bylaws that you, know, you would be tested as a player uh, for cannabis consumption. And, you know, I don't have any direct access to the NBA or anything like that. But I like to think that, you know, once they saw that um, it's not necessarily a detriment to the team, it shouts out to people like um, Al Harris at Viola and, and um, Calvin Johnson, Megatron, um, at Primitive, to be specific, you've had uh, a nucleus of former players that have come out and said, hey, we have been doing this for a long time now. <laughs> um, everybody else just needs to catch up for, for a litany of different reasons. And then the, the, the back channel to that is that now you have other players who are currently playing um, that have an ability to monetize in ways that former players have an ability to monetize. And I've always believed that uh, the way that uh, legislation goes is based on a professional sports because of what it means to America in general. Um, and then obviously big industry like oil, gas, but in this case, big pharma. And so I think with NBA, MLB, soon to be probably uh, the NHL and NFL as well, um, moving in one direction and a big pharma calling for it at the same time, uh, it bodes well for federal legislation to to come into fruition. How quickly that happens um, or how that looks, 
uh, I guess is a better way to put it, um, is, is to be determined. We might not like any of it uh, <laughs> as far as how it flushes out at the end of the day. But um, when you got a major league like the NBA doing what it's doing for its players, I imagine that they know things that we probably don't have access to. So, absolutely. No, I appreciate you sharing that, Chris. And you know, when I uh, when I when I attended the, uh, the the Pharaohs game last year, I got a picture of myself next to you know some of the promotional banners, which included the sticky logo. And I I, mean, I took that one because I was at you know your basketball game, but two was also because that's mm-hmm. historic right there. Seeing at a, at a professional basketball game that sticky logo, it really blew my mind. To be quite honest, that was uh, it was quite a trip. Uh, so no, appreciate you sharing that. And uh, and and as far as I just want to remark on you know what you're saying about how it looks and whether we like it or not. That's why we're doing this work at the NCA, right? Yeah. We're representing Main Street. We're representing social equity businesses. Like we're like, hey, look, we got to figure out how to galvanize and work together so that as this happens, <laughs> you know, we have the right partnerships in place and we have a voice at the table. So uh, you know, even if we're not the loudest or the most uh, well resourced as far as financially as say the pharmaceutical companies may be, <laughs> uh, you know, the more that we can organize together and really be galvanizing hundreds and, and even thousands of businesses, I think that that speaks well. So thanks for bringing that up, Chris. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so now let me take a more regional context. This is big news coming out of Michigan this week for anybody that follows anything related to, <laughs> to cannabis. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's a telltale. Um, it's not great news for the industry, but um, hopefully we learn and grow for, from it. And uh, there was a uh, the ex-speaker uh, of the House, uh, Rick Johnson, I believe at the time. Uh, so Michigan during its medical phase, I don't, I don't know if many people know that Michigan for a long time had a, a medical market, um, a, a regulated me- medical market, uh, whereas probably longer than some of the states that, that are more mature than we are even in adult use. Um, so in 2008, the, the uh, Michigan medical marijuana market was established and um, Shortly after that, there was a board that basically consisted of five people that uh, dictated whether or not you received a license or not. Right. So problematic to begin with, first of all, because um, as far as I can tell, they were all um, at least the chairman of the board was appointed by the governor. So it wasn't like it was a democratic system or anything like that. Right. Um, Anyway, this 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 system, this board existed for. 10 years, uh, abolished in 2019 by Gretchen Whitmer, uh, which means that um, very likely that these folks influenced the way that our industry in Michigan looked then, but also continues to look now because of the head start that some businesses had access to, uh, generally speaking. At any rate, uh, some news just came down the pipeline from a a litany of different sources. that um, Rick Johnson, former chairman of this board, admitted to taking bribes uh, from at least two companies um, and just taking a plea deal. Um, the The company owner also admitted to it, and there are two lobbyists who are also uh, on the hook for this. So we're talking about public corruption at its finest. Um and and what likely will happen is there will be other indictments coming down the pipeline because we're talking about folks taking a plea deal. It means that they're cooperating, right? So um, there are probably a lot of um, companies that are shitting their pants, hoping that um, they don't get mentioned in this upcoming process. 
Uh, what's frustrating to me is that money and the influence of this board theoretically dictated what our market looks like. And it's shifting in some capacity, um, but in order, I mean, for instance, Calvin Johnson, Megatron, I'll bring him up to bring it full circle. He was on uh, an, ep an episode of Cannavision not that long ago, last year. And this board actually denied him a license, him and his partner, Rob Sims, for parking tickets um, that were probably seven to eight years old or something like that. So if Megatron... <laughs> can't get a license from this board an NFL hall of fame to put it in perspective um one of the top two wide receivers of all time of all time right <laughs> easy right yeah. um what makes anyone else um that that's normal that doesn't have the resources or the relationships or the connections what makes them think that you know they may not have been targeted in a similar fashion um and while we're only calling out Rick Johnson because he was the chairman of the board, uh, I'm not saying everyone on that board was corrupt or, or took money or bribes or anything like that for the record. However, he likely had influence over decisions that were made, right? So whether or not they knew what they were a part of or not, uh, it doesn't change the fact that um, our industry in Michigan looks a certain way um, because of bribery and, and public corruption ultimately um now since then the system has been streamlined in a way where it's far less um what's the word i'm looking for uh it, it's, it's it's not biased right in a lot of ways anymore however we can't say that history doesn't necessarily dictate and, and the issue is that there won't be anything retroactively done probably to correct any of this um so you live with it and you'd be happy that some folks that got caught got caught. But uh, we got to get more creative about how uh, we fix issues like this. More importantly, hopefully it's a telltale for um, other states that that may be considering doing something similar um, to think otherwise and have a more streamlined process. So uh, not great news. Uh, well, well, great news in that public corruption is being exposed related to our industry. Um, not great news because it happened in Michigan, but it is what it is. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that uh, that news with us, Chris. Uh, it reminds me of Florida and, and the frustration there, right? Because, okay, so they have this guy now, they slap him on the wrist, they send him to some white power institution. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, his wife is still the CEO of the company that benefited the most from that. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's just kind of interesting to see how uh, these things roll out. And to your point, okay, let's go ahead and slap one or two of these people on the wrist to take the deal uh, because they know they have enough against them that if they don't take the deal, they're going away for, for serious time. Uh, and then the people that benefited from all that situation get insulated and isolated from the fallout and the industry continues to move forward as if, uh, you know, it didn't happen other than now we can talk about it on shows like this or uh, whatever else may be. But to your point, I think that, you know, things are tightening up everywhere. And this was stuff that happened during kind of a, a little bit more still Wild West-ish days. And yeah. hopefully now we're going to start seeing that, that that transparency is key. And a lot of these uh, these new institutions, uh, these new you know agencies like OCM New York, for example, operate with a lot of transparency uh, relative to what was done in the past. So, uh, yeah, not not the best news, but good news that it's coming out. So thanks, man. Um, did you have uh, some businesses you wanted to highlight in uh, in the Michigan area before we uh, uh, push forward? Yeah, I'll just say quickly, uh, on, on the flip side, the positive things that are happening. 
<laughs> is um you know in, in other states as well like Connecticut and you know you got states like Pennsylvania um Maryland right that are making their transition um Minnesota having some conversations so shouts out to the folks that um are actively including equity without having to be told to do so right um and so in Detroit finally after that big fiasco now there are um, businesses from you know, social equity legacy applicants that are opening up. Um, so more black and brown ownership is happening as we speak um, in what is probably considered the blackest or at least one of the blackest cities in America. Um, and so businesses are starting to reflect um, its residents, right? The, the, the folks who live there, um, which is really important when you consider long-term um, just economic prosperity for communities at large. And so while there's conversation of corruption, uh, there's also conversations of, of perseverance and, and, and ownership, which is, which is really uh, what we want to push. So shouts out to uh, the folks that are opening up their dispensaries, provisioning centers here in Michigan. Awesome. No, that's great news, uh, especially after all the delays and the pushbacks and the lawsuits. It's great news to hear that that's moving forward and happening. Uh, and, you know, what's the landscape going to look like in a couple of years? It'll look better for sure. So Hopefully. that's awesome. Yeah. We're working on it, right? Yeah, We're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Still more work to do always. Uh, you can't stop and get complacent. Uh, so we have a great guest here today, somebody that has really taught me a lot over the last few years about what how how the indigenous cannabis and hemp uh, you know, landscape looks, especially relative to the rest of uh, the industry that often really does not have any idea what's going on in the indigenous world, to be quite frank. I think that it's something that we, uh, we, we, we've slept on for too long. Um, we've tried at NCA to make sure that we are much more conscious about this. Uh, we got to work with Mary Jane a couple years ago uh, in the Detroit uh, um, uh, conference that we did actually, where Chris was a, a major, um, you know, assistant, uh, you know, assisting of, of us there. Um, you know, Mary Jane. You know, I, I, I mean, there, there's so many accolades, right? There's so many different organizations you're part of, like whether it's you found the the Tribal Hemp and Cannabis Magazine, uh, you found, you know, uh, the Indigenous Cannabis uh, Coalition. You are now the new executive director of the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association, and you're also a board member of the Justice Foundation. I mean, basically, every time I see you, you're just doing tireless work. I see you all over the country. Uh, I, I follow you. I see everything you're doing to really make sure that the Indigenous, uh, you know, dilemmas that exist in this industry uh, that are unique and interesting and complex, which is why I think we also kind of push them to the side a lot of the times because it's already a complex industry. So I really appreciate you and everything you're doing. I know a lot of people do. Uh, everybody I talk to is always like, yeah, Mary Jane is is just on point. So Mary Jane, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really looking forward to this conversation and really helping some of our viewers understand a little bit more about the what's going on in indigenous uh, cannabis and hemp. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to to join as a guest. I, I am a big fan of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Awesome. That's, that's great to hear. <laughs> uh, we're a big fan of you. So um the first thing is just, you know, um, wanted to ask you, you know, before we get into all the, the, the industry industry side of things and the policy side of things, on a personal side of things, right? Because at the end of the day, cannabis is a very personal, uh, you know, relationship with the plant, right? Uh, so can you tell us about your relationship with the plant, right? I, I know it's central to the work that you do. And so it's something that, that really drives a lot of your passion. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, well, I'm joining you all from the ancestral homelands of, of my people. 
um, in the Nimipu territory, uh, currently known as present-day Idaho. Um, I really like to talk about my community and really lead from that position because our creation story of the Nez Perce people uh, includes the hemp rope and our sacred sacrament was smoke as a um, as a healing tool as a way of connecting has been uh, a way of our people's life regardless of what sacred blends and herbs you know are are put together our people have already had a, have always had a high value of that um that sacrament and so it's really important to always you know for me recognize that this work is really rooted in the ancestors of our people and reconnecting our uh, contemporary uh, indigenous communities with those relationships of the past, you know, is really, really why I'm so driven to do this work. So my relationship with the plant really is, um, you know, it part of honoring our ancestors and planning for future generations. And, you know, while we um, are doing this work in unity, because that's really what um, I'm really honored to be a part of is a lot of partnerships, a lot of networks, is that the um, indigenous communities uh, really have had a very strong subculture and underground since the war on drugs, since the war on this beautiful sister plant. And I come from a family that has always had a very high value, all puns intended, of this as a medicine that heals. Um, my grandma went to federal prison for growing when I was a little girl. My mom, she uh, was a cannabis user through all six of her pregnancies. We're all healthy, happy, um, uh, contributing members of society. So I would also argue to say that, you know, we've had that um relationship or that symbiosis with with cannabis since in utero so that's really where where my um my start is there you know mike is that it started you know when um, my mother consciously chose to medicate herself and use cannabis uh to heal and did so while she was pregnant so i mean it's it's been a part of my dna forever so Along those lines, and I, and I appreciate you sharing that perspective and in, 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 in that story. So along those lines, I, I you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest to say that I'm only starting to begin to understand uh, tribal and indigenous cannabis policy. Um, and, and I imagine because a lot of folks live in silos and everyone has their own issues um, that they probably don't understand it as well as they should. Um, either. And it, it's a very complex matter. So can you give us an, a general overview of what the state of affairs currently looks like for uh, Indigenous and tribal cannabis? Well, it is complex. And I can, you know, in Mike's opening, just reiterate that the complexity of uh, tribes from one state to the next, uh, regionally, um, and then the complexities of those state government relationships do make it a hard pill to swallow. It's like, you know, the, the whole eating an elephant, you know, where do you start? And that's really what I did was just one bite at a time. I live in present day Idaho, but my reservation borders right next to Washington state. 
So uh, while I was working on some of our tribal uh, law and order code revisions and uh, community work to move in that direction, the community will to move in the direction of uh, passing proactive cannabis legislation, I made the decision to go and work at a dispensary in Washington state so I could kind of learn the front end recreational retail side of things, learn what the nuances of uh, the whole um, track and trace seed to sale, you know, all of the buzzwords of the industry. I wanted to just saturate that knowledge. And um, that's when I realized, holy cow, there's a lot of tribes in Washington that were already really active um, in the work that I was doing. I wasn't seeing a lot of farms coming out of tribal communities, but a lot of recreational retail stores, specifically in Washington, and that was kind of like my aha moment when I realized, okay, tribes are really stepping up here in Washington. What are they doing in other places? And so I just kind of started nerding out, starting a journal of who's doing what, where, and started doing that in 2018. 2019 founded the Indigenous Cannabis Industries or Indigenous Cannabis Coalition, excuse me. And uh, for me, education and advocacy is really where it's at. We're going to be in that space for a long time, really driven by data, policy, and research so that our tribal communities could make informed decisions. And that's when I just kind of just took that 30,000 square foot view um, state by state, trying to track which tribes were operational uh, as an enterprise in, um, in retail, which ones were cultivating, and then... Um, decided to to put it into a format that was palatable and created a THC magazine. And in the centerfold of the magazine is the nation's first and only proprietary tribal nations uh, cannabis dispensary and farm map, where we work to track and uh, create a directory of all of the uh, operations of tribes across the nation, as well as a catalog of all of the tribes that have been approved by the USDA to cultivate hemp. Is this like a you know? Uh, first off, that, that's amazing uh, background. Um, that's good to know. Uh, I don't. I don't think I, I was familiar with that map myself. Even um, so, um, the uh, is this something that is common amongst tribes? Like, are are a lot of tribes across the country uh, participating in some capacity in in whether it's cultivation or retail, or is this like you know a minority of tribes? Like, how how what does it look like the landscape? Well, the landscape is still very much a minority, uh, but we're seeing a, a big uptick with more uh, networking between the tribes, uh, conversations starting at that local community level and expanding out. But out of the 574 federally recognized tribes, less than 50 are operating cannabis enterprises. Uh, but with that being said, those tribes that are, are in cannabis are seeing such great success that they are uh, creating secondary retail locations, or they are now working at creating, um, you know, fully vertically integrated facilities where they're also putting off shelf because they're, it's like, like Costco, you know, they, they have their, their big brand. And then they have all of these other brands and tribes really see that having their own farm, creating their own brand is uh, really a niche market for them. But not enough, definitely not enough tribes um, exercising their their sovereign authority in this area. And to that point, are you within tribes, are you seeing um, 
tribal ownership collectively or are you seeing individuals within the tribes decide to move into the cannabis space and represent on behalf of you know that's a really interesting question because as we're um you know saw what happened in washington state it was primarily tribal enterprises moving forward with kind of almost of a corporate model of tribal business in cannabis and now we're seeing some of those tribes retroactively amend their ordinances to allow their tribal members, the individuals, to apply for a license to cultivate under tribal law uh, instead of having to go through the processes of doing it with the state uh, to become a permitted state cultivator. Um, and then, you know, you look over to the other side of the uh, nation in New York, and you're seeing more of a model where they're crafting their codes and ordinances for the benefit of the people. They want to see the families that have persevered and kept this plant medicine um, that, that, that have had a connection with it. They want to see those families also benefit. And so we're seeing everything in between. There are some tribes want nothing to do with plant touching, absolutely nothing, but they realize it's a viable economic opportunity for them to maybe open up their lands for uh, leasing to other cannabis companies to come in. And then, of course, they are they're um, generating revenue from their taxing structure plus uh, leasing land plus uh, their ordinance, uh, fees permitting, you know, the regulatory structure. So there are tribes that are benefiting from cannabis, uh, having uh, the opportunity to create safe quality access in their communities that is well-regulated um, and it's not even owned or operated by the tribe. So it's really interesting. It's like not a one size model fits all is, is our motto at the ICIA um, until we see something that is that, you know, um, that golden ring, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's in part and parcel, but we're um, more than anything, just collecting a lot of the data on what the tribes are doing, um, you know, to, and networking them with each other. And uh, there was a conversation brought up earlier, you know, about the, the bad actors, something that the ICIA is definitely concerned about, you know, through our partnerships, having those conversations, not only about anti-monopoly, but bringing up some of the nuances of what happened in the early days of uh, Indian gaming and why there was the impetus to create the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act because of the game gamesmanship that was happening in tribal communities. And there's definitely um, predatory situations happening in tribal cannabis and um, our presence is unsettling and uncomfortable uh, for the bad actors that are doing this in Indian country because now they're seeing tribes um, up the ante do uh, higher levels of due diligence or making sure that they are sourcing tribally owned and operated consulting companies to work with hmm. uh, or allies that have um, been vetted. <laughs> Okay. And when you say our presence, you're talking about the ICIA's presence, right? Yes. Okay. The Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association. Cool. Just making sure because, you know, a lot of different moving parts here. Um, and so, you know, on this note, right, uh, ICIA, you know, looking to make sure that, you know, uh, keeping the bad actors uh, accountable, identifying the bad actors, doing research and what is going on, connecting the dots, um, you know, is um, a question I have here is, how does the ICIA, how does how does the tribal cannabis, uh, you know, ecosystem interact with 
the rest of the ecosystem of cannabis companies, especially when it comes to uh, states that maybe uh, you know aren't legal yet, or does do are tribal uh, you know cannabis companies only existing in states that are legal already? Like, how does this whole whole thing work, basically? That's another great question. Uh, there's there's definitely some some blending uh, over into tribal communities where there's uh, no legal form of cannabis in the state, um, mostly on the exploratory side of things. You know, tribes that are more progressive are are trying to find ways that they can you know, craft their ordinances so that they can be, um, you know, turnkey so that they can be ready to go as soon as, um, as soon as that opens up. Uh, I do know that there's, you know, we just hosted a historic summit with the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association. Our founders and a majority of our board members are from Wisconsin. There's no legal form of cannabis in Wisconsin. Uh, all of their, um, laws around hemp do allow uh like you know thc or hemp derived thc products so there's there's not a lot of regulatory structure uh in wisconsin and a political will to move in that direction the governor very supportive of moving forward with cannabis uh our indigenous cannabis industry association has uh had the opportunity with our leadership to sit down with uh, attorney general um called to discuss what uh, it would look like for tribes to um, have the opportunity to engage in in cannabis exercising our sovereign authority so more than anything it's just you know the um, that early conversation um, also with our tribes to um, get them the tools and resources that they need um, to network with other tribal cannabis attorneys, uh, because Wisconsin is very complex. It's a public law 280 state. Uh, Idaho, where I'm from, uh, there are no tribes here uh, working specifically on cannabis development. Like there's no cultivation going on except for the, you know, gorilla family farms that have historically always happened. Aside from that, um, our tribes are working, they're doing their due diligence, they're working with their insurance companies, doing the risk management assessments uh, so that they can be ready. Um, but uh, because of the language that was crafted in the Cole Wilkinson Memorandum, I'm really seeing more than anything tribes that are in states where there's no legal form they are progressing very slowly. They're just having community conversation. They're revising their law and order codes or they're crafting cannabis ordinances so that they can be ready. Um, but nothing um, at that bold level where it's um, challenging the status quo. Hmm. So... Okay, this good transition point, maybe. So at, at the Reservation Economic Summit, um, you spoke on tribal hemp and, and cannabis. Uh, so how was that received? And, and do you mind sharing a little bit about your experience as you try to spread the good word? Yes, it was a wonderful summit. Uh, the National Center for American Indian Economic Development 
has been holding this convening for a while and the cannabis conversation uh, only came to the agenda because of our, you know, emerging partnership with uh, their organization and the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association. That's really what our organization has been able to do is uh, be that partner that brings the conversation into the space so that they don't have to lead with it. And that's uh, when I say they, some of our tribal organizations um, don't necessarily feel comfortable leading with cannabis as you know one of their pillars, but they understand that it impacts health equity. It impacts housing issues. It impacts uh, yeah, job uh, and job policy issues and employment policy. So it has to be a conversation that that we have. And so to be able to go into a, a forum like Res, I mean, we're talking like 4,000 tribal community members from across the nation that that joined together for this convening. So it was a packed room. Um, I, I anticipated that it would be uh, because we're, you know, advancing a very complex conversation into you know, one of the most notable tribal convenings that happens uh, across Indian country and um, being able to lead the conversation uh, from the indigenous perspective uh, with trusted experts from across the across the nation. So that's really our strongest skill set is, you know, our founder and uh, president, uh, Rob Perro. He is uh, the owner of Candigenous uh, CBD in Wisconsin. So he is, you know, working towards uh, branding, marketing, retail, cultivation in Wisconsin already on the CBD side and sees, you know, that that um, need to be able to uh, educate the other tribal leaders, you know, as an entrepreneur leading tribes into a safer space conversation. Uh, our board of directors really is dynamic. I mean, we've got Marnie King, she's um, out of Hub International, um, you know, serving um, to really advance that risk management conversation and bridge that gap with their cannabis division, uh, cannabis management team. Uh, Colin Price, another one of our board members, he's a retired uh, law enforcement officer and has really shifted the narrative in how we engage uh, with people that are still very resistant with this conversation. Um, you know, we also have Fern Ori, who uh, serves uh, with OISTA uh, and has really advanced the uh, conversation around um, community financial uh, development institutions and how tribal banking um, and our um, advocacy as well as our lobbying efforts within the Department of Commerce and the Department of Treasury are a lot stronger. And then, of course, our attorney, Samantha Skenendor, uh, she's just always on her A-game. And um, so we have um, the, the need for resources to be able to create a stronger federal lobbying side of what we do. We really, I think, have a, a good lay of the land um just in general yeah so uh, you know i think you read my mind with what uh, what i wanted to ask you <laughs> next uh so um you know you mentioned banking and uh, you know this is where i think there is uh intersection between what um you know the, the social equity community in cannabis and the uh the indigenous community in cannabis uh, where they intersect because especially with cdfis and cdfis i want to make sure i get the acronym right uh, community development financial institutions. Um, these are uh, mission-driven financial institutions 
that, you know, historically do uh, serve low income communities as well as minority communities, indigenous communities. And I know from, you know, from actually reading some of the things that you put out there, this is uh, a, a, a sector of, of businesses that do serve the, uh, the indigenous uh, population. So, you know, my reason for saying all this is that, you know, NCAA, our, uh, our one of our focuses is really the Safe Banking Act. And recently, the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition last year came out with an amazing white paper that showed uh, 10 recommendations. One of those recommendations was to make sure that CDFIs are included in the language moving forward. Um, it's something that, you know, we um, our, our DEI delegation is actually advocated for within the organization here. Uh, and so my question for you really is just, you know, how does this overlap? Uh, is this a priority of ICIA? Is this something you all are looking at and working on? Uh, you know, how, how does the whole banking ecosystem come into play with with you all and CDFIs in particular? Oh, it's super, super critical to be able to have clarity in the language for our tribal CDFIs. That's the hub for the loans, the grants, equity investments, the deposits, our credit unions. It's just like the um, the core of economic sovereignty for tribes and being able to have access uh, in tribal communities to the lending services uh, would be huge. But I think that even bigger than that is the, the technical assistance. Right now, a lot of our tribal communities uh, have the opportunity to kind of create the templates, the boilerplate template templates for what that could look like in cannabis. Um, but the CDFIs are still in need of, um, I guess, more of this uh, allyship with organizations like, uh, you know, the National Cannabis Industry Association in partnership with the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association on data assessments. Like we have uh, the need to uh, assess how many of our tribal CDFIs right now are working specifically in hemp lending. I mean, hemp is federally legal and we still have a large amount of our CDFIs that are not touching hemp. So we know that they're not going to want to touch cannabis for a long time, even after it would be federally legal or safe banking, then there's going to be a need uh, for for our tribal CDFIs to have technical assistance uh, crosswalk to what this looks like. But there are programs out there that are working. So we have to kind of reverse engineer that. Um, one of those examples is the uh, Oregon Native American Chamber received grant funding from the um, the Portland uh, seed uh, funds. So now they have the opportunity to help create regenerative cannabis farming business plans for tribal and indigenous community members in the Portland metro area. So they're working on creating curriculum, uh, the uh, video tools and resources. And this is exciting because I see little a little micro program like this that's created between a city program and a, a chamber of commerce then being able to support and be replicated out in native CDFIs across the country. Um, that are not going to feel comfortable developing those resources themselves uh, because this conversation is still very taboo. And um, there's very clear direction that, you know, gaming and cannabis dollars cannot mix, cannot cross. Uh, it, so the tribes really want to make sure to proceed carefully because there's always the... Um, the notion out there that they could be jeopardizing their other federal funds, other federal grants that they receive. 
And so that's why we see less than 50 of the 574 federally recognized tribes as those others have not figured out um, yet what that business structure looks like for them to create a cannabis enterprise or they're just waiting. They're waiting for safe banking to pass or they're waiting for um, their state to legalize or they're waiting for federal legalization. There's there's always going to be those tribes that are, you know, on the outside of the fishbowl and, and they see those other tribes growing big, you know, inside of the fishbowl, but they're going to wait for the permission. Uh, but that's not all tribes. And that's definitely not a majority of the tribes. But I do feel that if we got safe banking over the finish line with provisions uh, for tribal banking, CDFIs, that that would be the Pandora's box in Indian country. Awesome. I oh, appreciate you sharing that breakdown. And uh, it just it goes to show again why safe banking is a lot more than just simply being able to get a bank account. Right. It's a big signal for a lot of uh, institutions and a lot of uh, you know, institutions, whether they're lending institutions, banking institutions, um, to be able to, to step forward, uh, technical assistance, even all these different pieces. Uh, so let's definitely make sure we connect offline and, and continue the conversation regarding, uh, you know, as we get ready for going to DC with our talking points and lobby days and everything. Um, so uh, I think we're starting to come up against time here a little bit. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break here and then we're gonna come back for our candid quiz our, 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 you know, our game segment that we that we run every week. Uh, and I think we have a couple other little uh, tidbits of information we want to share regarding Mary Jane here uh, once we get back from, uh, from break. So Vince, uh, our amazing producer, take us uh, away for about 60 seconds. Well, here at the National Cannabis Industry Association, we have proudly represented small businesses across the cannabis industry since 2010. We represent Main Street Cannabis, not Wall Street Cannabis. We have come so far in this fight to legalize cannabis that it seems that it's almost inevitable. And we're the ones making sure that as those rules are written, they favor small businesses, mom and pop operators, and Main Street Cannabis, not Wall Street Cannabis. In addition to making sure that your voice is heard at the federal level, being a member of NCIA also means building a vibrant community of small business owners within the cannabis space because we can always learn so much better by working together, learning from our mistakes and our successes and building this industry together. So if you're interested in making sure that small businesses and Main Street Cannabis has a seat at the table, be sure to join NCIA at thecannabisindustry.org. All right, so um, we have our candy quiz uh, today. Uh, we have our candy quiz, the way that this works, it's our game, it's a multiple choice game. Yeah, we have two questions for you. The goal is to get, of course, both of them. Uh, but if you don't get both, then let's see if we can get 50-50 out of these. Uh, so um, let's see. We're going to start here now. And and as I mentioned, I do have a, a snippet of information that I want to share with everybody, but we've been holding off until the end uh, to share about Mary Jane. I want to ask you about in a second here uh, the experience with. Um, so the first question here, uh, and these are provided by our awesome producer, Vince, Vince Chandler. Shout out to Vince, uh, all the amazing work you do. Have, uh, four years now, you've been producing the show. I uh, really appreciate the hell out of you at NCAA and helping keep us honest in so many ways with uh, making sure that DEI stays at the forefront. So and I don't say that lightly. I know that, Vince, this is something you live, breathe, eat, sleep, everything. So appreciate you, man. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, here's the first question. As research continues to be published, the medicinal uses of cannabis become increasingly more undeniable. What is one way that more and more experts recommend experiencing the benefits of the plant 
without producing the euphoric high associated with traditional consumption. So the question here is really, what is, what is uh, you know, something that more and more experts are recommending if you want to basically, you know, experience the euphoric, uh, experience the, the benefits of the plant without the euphoria? So is it uh, eating the plant raw, smelling the flowers while they grow, cross-pollinating while cultivating household herbs? It, it is impossible to interact with cannabis without getting high. So that's the fourth answer, right? Saying that that's not even a possibility. Uh, so eating the plant raw, smelling the flowers while they grow, cross-pollinating while cultivating household herbs, or it's simply an impossibility. I would say take the time to stop and smell the flowers. That is an awesome answer. Um, but <laughs> let's see here. We got consuming raw cannabis does not con cause the high feeling that one gets when smoking cannabis or consuming it via decarboxylated edibles. Studies have also shown that consuming raw cannabis has the potential to treat lupus, arthritis, and neurodegenerative diseases, help stimulate appetite and decrease nausea, prevent the spread of malignant prostate cancer cells, and prevent cell damage that can lead to serious illness and poor health. I would not have guessed this one myself by any means. I don't know if anybody here has ever tried eating uh, it raw like that. It's it's not necessarily the best uh, flavor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It gets you over juicing, there, right? Juicing, though. I imagine What's there's that? a lot of people that are juicing. Mm -hmm. Ah, there you go. Okay, juicing. And, and Vince just put it in the chat there. Yep, juicing. So that's what it is. All right, juicing. That makes a lot more sense to me. Okay. MC Mary Jane, you actually you, you actually kind of knew what we were talking about. Um, you know, here you go. So, uh, Chris, did you want to uh, run the, the second question here? You go ahead. Technical. All right. I'll, I'll go ahead and take it here. So, um, so, all right. So, Mary Jane, know your history or be doomed to repeat it, right? As Chris mentioned earlier today on today's show. Uh, that's the old adage, and in an effort to remember our own history, let's go back more than 100 years to the start of cannabis prohibition. Federally, it began in 1911, prohibition did. But what was the year of the first state bans for the plant? So what was the year of the first state bans of cannabis? 1911, 1913, 1917, 1923. Oh, I thought that the first state ban was the same as the first year of federal ban. My, my guess is 1911. All right, so we're gonna go with uh, here. I mean, and that, that's that's better guess than I would have necessarily. So uh, in 1913, California, Maine, Wyoming, and India in Indiana banned cannabis. 1915, Utah and Vermont followed with their own ban before being joined in 1917 by Colorado, uh, when legislators make the use of cannabis uh, cultivation of cannabis a misdemeanor. In 1923, Iowa, Oregon, Washington, and Vermont, Vermont bans take effect, mirroring many of the first states. So the answer is 1913, California, Maine, and Wyoming, followed by Utah and Vermont, then Colorado, Iowa, Oregon, Washington, Vermont. Uh, the interesting thing there to me is um, that, uh, so, you know, so it is 1913, a couple years after the federal ban. Uh, the interesting thing is a lot of these states are states that we are familiar with being some of the first states to go ahead and... <laughs> Uh, legalize uh, adult use. Uh, California, Colorado, uh, Oregon, Vermont's on board here now. So, uh, you know, a lot to unpack there. We probably don't have time to get into what might be behind some of that. <laughs> but um, I think that it's really interesting to look back on our history and recognize that these states, uh, you know, were not necessarily uh, down with the cause uh, from early on. So, um, yeah. So sorry, Mary Jane, it looks like you're 0 for 2. But that's an 0 for 2 with an asterisk, I think. Uh, because, you know, you still kind of, you still show a uh, higher knowledge than us at the show here about the, uh, about the questions in, in, in the first place. So, um, yeah. Uh, so the other thing that I wanted to ask you about before we go here is, I'll make sure I got it correct. All right. Yes. 
1997, homecoming queen of Miss Miss Idaho. <laughs> so Miss Idaho homecoming queen. And uh, tell, tell us about this. Like, I mean, this I, I saw this. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Here we go. So tell us about this, uh, this experience. What does oh this mean? <laughs> I, of course, even in, you know, senior in high school, as I was graduating, I was, I was a cannabis user. And so I felt like I was really just posing going to this first I just went to the the state competition and uh I was just going because it was a scholarship competition and I planned on going to college and I just needed a little bit of extra flow so I only entered it for like a, a check <laughs> because we got some, you know we raised money for the sponsorships and we got some scholarship money out of it I ended up winning the state competition and won a trip to Anaheim, California for the Miss Idaho homecoming queen competition. And then I was like, how am I going to go without my medicine? So um, I had a great mentor, AKA mom. And she was like, you're just going to take a couple of joints and you're going to put them in with a pack of cigarettes and then you'll be fine. And so I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff to go down there and represent the great state of Idaho um and I did I went to the state competition um I had to rent a dad because my parents uh, couldn't go with me my mom had just had the oops baby my my baby brother Vance was just recently born when I had to go down to California uh for this competition and uh you had to walk with the dad down the anyways I I did did a great at the national competition. I learned a lot. I got a little bit of scholarship money, but on the very, very last night, I was like, oh, I got to sneak away. So I went down by the pool and I was over there smoking up and I hear voices and I hear giggling. I'm like, oh shoot, you know, and there were four other girls from, you know, I don't want to name their states just to not throw them completely under the bus uh, because you could probably look that information up, but four girls from right. four states come walking around the corner and they're like, oh my God, I knew it. So we kind of all had this camaraderie and we all on the very last night got to share that doobie that I uh, smuggled in, in my Marlboro light package. <laughs> so I was, I was always trying to figure out how to move, you know, at a very, very young age. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great story. The Marlboro Lights, the, 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 the baby, the rented dead. I mean, the whole thing, right? The four other states. Now I'm going to know what the other four states were just out of curiosity, but of course we'll ask that offline, <laughs> but no, thanks for sharing. Uh, that, that's awesome. Um, uh, Chris, uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us today as as a co-host here today um, and providing uh, some of those takes on the news, man. Uh, really, really good, insightful stuff. Um, and, you know, Mary Jane, always a pleasure. Like, really is to have these conversations with you. I'm glad you were able to join us, uh, just really bringing this knowledge, this information. Uh, thank you for really spelling a lot of these things out for us. As I mentioned earlier, this is stuff that I'm still learning. And so it's I'm, I'm putting my hat on while you're talking also and really making sure that I understand because this is important stuff when we go to D.C. And as we continue our lobbying here from the NCIA, we need to make sure that we are respectful of and inclusive of the indigenous perspective in cannabis. And this goes to everybody out there listening today. Right. This is something that we need to keep moving forward. Uh, we can't talk about social equity. We can't talk about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion if we're ignoring the indigenous population when it comes to uh, this plant. So thank you so much for bringing everything here today. Um, Let's see. I think we're yep, right up against time. Is there anything else you want to share with us before we uh, we do head out? Uh, check us out at indigenouscannabis.org. Join our network. And that's really what it's about is, you know, I, I've been bold and brave in this advocacy work, but 
uh, we're building community and uh, there I'm, there's like, you know, 20 other Mary Janes out there. Unfortunately, they're not named Mary Jane, but you know what I mean, you know, in, in each state, in each community, there are a lot of indigenous community folks like me that have the passion, they have the knowledge and they definitely have the uh, ability to advocate for, for indigenous communities. So that's what I love about this work is that, I mean, we're coming out. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's a great way to end the show today. So we'll go ahead and call it a wrap. Uh, thank you so much again, everybody that's listening and watching. Thank you so much. Uh, make sure that if you're watching us live, you go ahead and you subscribe on Spotify as well so that you get those notifications and you can help us share the uh, share the show out there. Uh, and if you are, are not watching it live, then check in on Mondays, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern time. We do the live video here and we can you can join in the chat and interact and engage with us as well. So everybody have a great one. We'll talk soon. Next week, we got um, Natasha Delanois Andrews and Dr. Bridget Williams. So we'll see you then. Thank you so much. Cannabis Minority Report is a production of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Hosted this week by Mike Lamuto and co-hosted by Chris Jackson. Our producers are Bethany Moore and Aaron Smith. And our executive producers are Vince Chandler and Mike Lamuto. 